Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It is a most wonderful time to speak to Terry Weissman. He's global interest rate and currency strategist at Macquarie, but with decades of experience at understanding that the Fed is a central banker to the world. Dr. Weissman, I, I, what I want to do right now is take the really important comment in your recent research that the Fed is far more important than Omicron and the Ukraine as well. If that's the case, what does EM want from the central banker to the world? I think emerging markets want what they always want, which is uh, cheap liquidity flowing from the de- developed markets into the emerging markets to help sustain their asset prices and sustain sustain their growth and their financial system. Uh, unfortunately, we're probably not going to get that that easily uh, when the Fed is retracting liquidity. And, and this is not really unusual. Uh, when the Fed starts into its uh, a tightening policy from an accommodative policy, as we saw in 2013 with the taper tantrum, as we saw it in 2015, in anticipation of the first rate hike from the Fed, there's always a class of asset uh, of, of assets that does poorly. In 2013, during the taper tantrum, it was clearly emerging markets, but you had a, a rotation in 2015 into the into the asset class that did most poorly, being commodities. There's always an asset class that suffers. It may not be emerging markets this year, by the way. It may simply be that that class of assets that's done very well in the previous regime of easy monetary policy and the pandemic, which was large cap tech. Mm-hmm. I was seeing uh, money coming out of the, uh, the NASDAQ uh, 100 uh, and, 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 the, um, and the cryptocurrencies right now. The arch theory is that EM is stronger, better, more resilient than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Do you buy that? I would have bought it if you asked me that two years ago. The problem is that the pandemic has introduced certain structural weaknesses into the emerging markets, including high debt levels. Remember, the emerging markets were no less shy than the developed markets in, in trying to spend their way out of the problems of the pandemic. That's left them with a high level of debt, a high debt burden, just as it has for the developed markets. So that thesis, might, it might have been valid two years ago. It, it's hardly valid these days. So, Terry, why have we not seen more of what you expect from the Fed priced in if we have one house after another coming out trying to up their forecast to the, for the year to five uh, rate hikes or possibly more? Well, I, if you mean for, for the emerging markets, I think it's because they were never a beneficiary of, of what happened over the last two years, certainly not from a, from a structural or economic perspective. So there's a thinking out there that because there's so much more value relatively speaking, in the emerging markets versus developed markets, they should be rotated into as we as we move out of the old regime and into the new regime. Now, that might be valid, except for the fact that I mentioned that some of these emerging markets do have these structural issues now as a result of the pandemic. But let's face it, some of the issues that are burdening the world and the, the, the sentiment of traders right now are stemming from the emerging markets. Uh, Russia is clearly an emerging market. Uh, China is as well, and, and there are geopolitical tensions there too uh, with regard to Taiwan. And of course, uh, Latin America, uh, the other the other bulge uh, bracket emerging market, is, um, is 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 confronting a lot of political uh, issues this year, including two major elections. So yes, if it weren't for the structural issues from the pandemic, if it weren't these geopolitical concerns, yes, Latin uh, Latin American emerging markets generally would look cheap right now. I agree, but there's still a few headwinds. 
So give us a sense of the scope of dollar strengthening that you're expecting. So we're expecting a little bit more dollar strengthening over the next few weeks and months. I, I mean, until we get resolution from the Fed as to what it's going to do uh, this week, and especially in March, it feels very difficult to imagine uh, traders jumping back into to foreign exchange and abandoning the dollar. So I think for the next few weeks and months, we're going to continue to see that strong, sturdy dollar theme that we've been advancing and calling for since the middle of last year. I think when we get through a few hurdles, including the Fed's uh, hike and, and the clarity over what their interest rate outlook is, we get through the French elections, maybe we get through the Russia-Ukraine uh, issues, then we can expect uh, some dollar weakness, but it probably won't happen until well into the second quarter of this year. We need to get all, through all of those hurdles. Tell me of China and the state of it now, Terry Weissman, going into the Olympics days away and then out of the Olympics. What happens when we go home? Uh, I don't know. Are they going to invade Taiwan? Are they going to continue to to um, uh, pump more more liquidity into the system? Is is, are, is their property development sector going to to crash as a result of the the, the burden of debt? Can they, they manage it? This is really this is your wheelhouse, Terry. Let's go there. I don't mean to interrupt, but this is too important. Do you suggest that their government can bail out the real estate sector? Is then the way they've bailed out things over the many decades? Yeah, there are very few financial sector problems that enough domestic liquidity created by the central bank cannot solve, okay? Let's be very clear here. On top of that, China has some certain advantages when dealing with these financial sector issues. They control the state banks, for example. Uh, they, they control a lot of the economy. Uh, so, so I think the tools at their disposal are actually greater than the tools that might have been at the disposal of the U.S. in, in the, great, in the uh, global financial crisis of 2009. Uh, so, so yes, I, I think that there is, I mean, if, if you have to bet whether or not they're going to be able to solve this, I would say yes. It may not be a, a, an abrupt solution. It may not be immediate. But over time, I don't think it's going to lead to the kind of concerns that we saw uh, 11 or 12 years ago in, in, in the Western world. Terry Wiseman. crisis. And Macquarie. Terry, thank you. Without question, this is our conversation of the day on what we see, what we observe, what we try to figure out forward in Ukraine. Chancellor Merkel is retired. So you were to say, who has the most expertise among Western diplomats on the fractious nature of Eastern Europe down to Ukraine and all of the balance of NATO? And many would suggest that the assistance of Mr. Macron of France is Philippe Etienne. He's French ambassador to the United States, but far more tours of duty in Belgrade, in Bucharest, and of course, with his knowledge of Eastern European languages of Romanian and Serbo-Karat as well. Ambassador, honored to have you with us this morning. What does the reporting, what does the zeitgeist right now in the West get wrong on Ukraine? Well, for the moment, first, uh, thank you for having me. For the moment, uh, of course, uh, uh, we face a very, a very serious crisis. We are Everybody is very much worried here about the risks of uh, this major crisis in the heart of Europe. And uh, uh, we must uh, uh, combine uh, firmness and uh, obviously uh, keep uh, the channels open. Uh, we are doing that as France, France having the presidency of the Council of the European Union right now, with our foreign ministers meeting again. Uh, of the 27 countries. We uh, are indeed uh, very, very keen to keep a very close consultation 
with the United States uh, and between all the formats engaged, uh, OSCE, but also EU, as I said, and mm -hmm. NATO and the United States, and also uh, to continue our work together with Germany in the so-called Normandy format to work with Ukraine and with Russia uh, to right. continue our work to <clears throat> find a solution to the crisis in eastern Ukraine. You were experienced at moving French citizens out of a crisis in Georgia. Georgia, of course, part of the Soviet Union. You've had a tangible hand-on experience. What should be the presentation to Mr. Putin to have him find a stability instead of an invasion of Ukraine? What is the distinction that you believe will change Mr. Putin's tone and rhetoric and action? First, we must uh, deter him from uh, any aggression uh, by clearly indicating that any aggression would uh, uh, have as a consequence very, very serious consequences. And then, as I said, we must also, as the US, as the Europeans are doing, uh, keep the channel opened to discuss uh, how uh, we have uh, the possibility, using uh, instruments of diplomacy, uh, to solve this uh, crisis also uh, in, in view of a longer-term basis, which is uh, to, re to rebuild the instruments of uh, European security. Uh, so many treaties have been abandoned in the recent years. We have this to rebuild now. How much daylight is there between the French approach to dealing with diplomacy and the U.S. approach right now? As I said, the French approach is not to deal with diplomacy only. It's also a clear uh, uh, indication uh, on the European side that we uh, will take the measures uh, to face uh, and to answer any aggression. Uh, so it's, uh, it's this dual approach where I do not see differences between the Europeans and the Americans. Uh, Ambassador, going forward, there is also a lot of tension, though, in the European Union because of the bifurcated economic recoveries after the pandemic. How much has this been a discussion as France has enjoyed a faster recovery than many other European regions? France, indeed, has... a. Uh, 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 regained its position, the position of this, its economy it had be, be before the pandemics. Uh, our economic and finance minister had just forecast a 4% growth next year. And uh, as an economist, the economist Paul Krugman wrote in a recent uh, uh, column, the uh, labor market is, uh, is, has not been disrupted because we have taken measures, by the way, not only in France, I think, but in Europe. But in particular in France, as we have seen last Monday, a week ago, our economy remains very attractive. Uh, 21 uh, important investors, including 11 American companies, have committed uh, to invest 4.5 billion uh, in, uh, in the French economy and to create 10,000 jobs, which means that the attractiveness of our economy is indeed quite strong. What does the French image in Europe mean in terms of military hardware sales to Ukraine? Germany seems so reticent, and not on a simplistic nature, but with Airbus expertise and with jet engineering expertise that everyone understands uh, is world class. We'll avoid submarines with Ukraine with great respect, Ambassador. But tell me what France can signal by, sell by selling French engineering to the people of Ukraine. 
well, it's not new that we have our uh, strong uh, economic uh, relationship uh, with Ukraine. Uh, um, so uh, we, we, we intend to, to continue to, to support Ukraine as we have been doing uh, until now, of course. I have to ask you one question on COVID. There's been such a, an uproar within the United Kingdom and America over Omicron and all. Give, uh, Lisa Bramowitz wants an update on Paris in April in terms of Omicron. How are you doing? Uh, the Omicron variant had, like in the U.S., a very strong surge uh, recently. Uh, or, and we, we hope uh, it, it is... Uh, now having its peak. Uh, of course, as a consequences uh, in terms of health, uh, intensive care units uh, uh, was, uh, the consequences were not that uh, serious as uh, before because people are mm -hmm. vaccinated a lot and the new vaccination pass uh, is uh, coming into force today. Uh, so right. there was a, a very, very strong uh, policy in France to have a uh, everybody being vaccinated, and uh, well, I think it worked quite well. Because of time in the market, sir, we must move on. Ambassador Etienne, thank you so much, Ambassador of France to the United States. Let's get to Victoria Fernandez, the Chief Market Strategist at Crossmark Global Investments. And right on cue, Victoria, I'll quote you. I know everybody is saying that the Fed is way behind the curve, but I do believe that they were trying to follow the data at least their interpretation of the data. What does that last bit mean, Victoria? Well, I think, Jonathan, when we look, everyone has a different opinion of what the data means. Even just talking about the inflation components a moment ago, are people more concerned about the inflation <clears throat> number or the response to inflation? And so I think that's what it means. What is the Fed's interpretation of what we're seeing? Do they still see a transitory component, even though they took that word away because the market didn't like it? I think they do. They anticipate that the inflation number is going to come down probably starting in the second quarter, and perhaps they want to buy themselves a little bit of time. So maybe we get one rate hike in March. I think originally they probably wanted to wait until June to do that. So maybe they'll give the market the first rate hike and then hold off until the middle of the year when inflation has come back down. So we need to see how the uh, Fed right. interprets what's going on with inflation. Victoria, what's the sweat level out there? When you talk to Crossmark clients, how afraid are people? Is there any sense of catharsis out there in abrupt change in equity portfolios? Well, obviously, when we've seen some of the volatility over the last couple of weeks, that's made clients nervous, right? But our conversation with them is, look, there is a lot going on right now for the market to digest. We have a decently strong economy. Hopefully, earnings is going to continue to support that. But you go along with it. We do have some high inflation numbers. We have monetary policy we're trying to, to get through. And we have rich valuations on some of these stocks out there. So the market's trying to digest that. It's not surprising then that we're in like the lowest decile of stocks making 20-day highs. But I think what's important and what we tell our clients is look at this kind of oversold condition that we're in and the longer-term upward trend that the market is still in and combine that with the fact that credit spreads. Jonathan and I, we talked about this on Real Yield about a week ago. Credit spreads are so well-behaved right now that that tells us there's still some support for the equity markets. There's just going to be quite a bit of volatility. I love that you uh, have, John has embedded a plug for his Real Yield show. <laughs> 
into his guests that come on uh, this property. Thank you uh, for that. That is a fantastic show. I do recommend you watch it 1 p.m. on Fridays. Uh, Victoria, how much going forward do you think that we have priced in some of the potential margin compression as we deal with the inflation that you talk about? Yeah, I mean, this is what everyone's going to be looking at in these earnings reports that come out. I mean, this week is jam-packed. You were naming some of the companies that we're going to see. The biggest issue that we think is going to be um, margin pressure when it comes to um, wages and employment cost index. Look at the ECI and how high that number has run. I think the Fed is watching that very closely. JP Morgan's an excellent example talking about um, the the issues that they had in regards to wages going higher and what that did to their earnings. So I think that's going to be key when we're looking um, at what the earnings report tell us and the guidance. Obviously, there's going to be some supply chain issues um, that will cause some margin compression as well. But I think it's going to be the employment cost that really people are going to be watching. And that could make a difference when we're looking at the volatility throughout the, the rest of earnings season. So, Victoria, given this whole backdrop, the fact that you said that you look or you're looking at an oversold condition, what aspects of the market right now are oversold and look attractive given all of these risk factors that you're putting out there? Yeah, you know, Lisa, look, the average stock is down about 15% right now from its 52-week highs. Tech names even more so, around 20%. So we think people need to pull out their shopping list here. We like financials as a sector for the um, for the 2022. We like JP Morgan, we like Bank of America. But I think look at some of the pullbacks that you've seen in other names, some of those more cyclical value names. Lowe's is down 11% over the last month. We just added to our Lowe's position on Friday. Regions Financial is another name. Tractor Supply, I think was down about 10% over the last month. So I think look for individual <clears throat> names that you can add to your portfolio that have had that pullback and start checking them off your shopping list. Victoria Fernandez across, Mark. Victoria, thank you for joining us and, of course, for the plug as well. <laughs>no, I mean, we have to focus back on the fundamentals and ultimately healthy fundamentals can help turn the market. Um, you know, for all the talk about how this is a Fed driven slowdown, I mean, where's the flight to safety in the dollar? Why is emerging markets uh, outperforming this year? I mean, it's all it's, it's a very uh, sort of interesting period for the financial markets. But, uh, you know, on this sort of idea that growth is decelerating. Um, you know, like so many things, I mean, uh, potential sightings like UFOs, potential sightings, not actually confirmed. I mean, you, you look, you think about housing, the housing market's accelerating. Um, there's a lot of construction activity in the pipeline. Uh, I would expect motor vehicle production to also be accelerating this year. Uh, that's substantially running below trend. Uh, and oh, by the way, we have, um, you know, two of Asia's largest economies taking steps to support growth this year. So um, I think, uh, and with the uh, Omicron variant beginning to fade, I mean, that's going to provide a positive demand shock to the service sector. 
uh, not only in the U.S., but globally. Okay, this is really critical and goes to Krugman's essay this weekend, which I thought was brilliant, partitioning the demand-side dynamics with the supply-side dynamics. And what you're suggesting, Neil, is within the gloom, demand will remain resilient? I believe so. I mean, take a look at mortgage purchase applications, Tom. I mean, even though interest rates have been backing up, purchase applications have actually been strengthening during that time, which tells you that maybe it's not only about interest rates, but things like price expectations, right? So the user costs for, for housing, even though rates have gone up, uh, remain low because price expectations also remain firm, right? So people are going to be much more willing to finance an asset they think is going to go up in value. And that's underpinning demand in the housing market. I mean, you're at a situation now where the builders are actually throttling sales again. So, um, you know, this isn't a demand issue. Um, so, you know, look, I mean, this deceleration call, yes, growth will decelerate. I mean, that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. I mean, we're growing very rapidly uh, off the lows in the pandemic. <laughs> and believe it or not, a deceleration is priced in. I'm looking at ECFC and Bloomberg right now. Quarterly growth expected to grow from 6% in the fourth quarter of this year down to 2.5% uh, in the fourth quarter of 2022. So it's about what's priced into the market and consensus expectations and what's the likely outcome relative to those expectations. And my sense is the inflationary boom is largely continuing this year. Okay, so if the inflationary boom is largely continuing, then how about the risk that people were worried about maybe a week ago about the Fed hiking rates uh, too quickly? Do you think that that's an overreaction as well, since the Fed's going to act cautiously and move slowly so that they don't disrupt anything? Well, I think the, I think the market is right to price in hikes this year. But I mean, I think we're getting a little bit over our skis. I mean, it looks like uh, the euro dollar futures market's basically priced uh, for a coin flip for a 50 basis point move in March. I mean, if history is any guide, recent history, so basically out during the, since from the 90s on, the Fed's more likely to end a tightening cycle with 50 basis points than start one with 50. So um, I think the odds of them going 50 in March is basically zero. Um, but as I said, I mean, four hikes and runoff this year, I think that's a reasonable baseline. Um, but I think where the market's getting a little bit over its skis here is, you know, pricing in five hikes, maybe six hikes well potentially. Those hikes probably shift more into... 2023. So the the market's right to price in a little bit more of an aggressive Fed. But you know, let's be let's be honest about this. Is the Fed really hawkish? I mean, other central banks are already hiking, Lisa, and maybe well, that's one of the reasons why, even though the kitchen sink has been thrown at the foreign exchange market, the dollar has actually been flattening out over the last three months. There are two concerns here right now, right? There's the inflation side, which you actually uh, endorse. You think that inflation is going to be stickier this year throughout the year. And how much does that crimp consumer demand, which you think it won't necessarily do? And then there's the idea of the Fed responding to this, which will at least shake uh, risk markets, which possibly is a reason why you've seen such a huge drawdown, particularly in the NASDAQ. On the first point, how much can you dismiss some of the retail sales data that we got out, some of the peripheral sentiment data that suggests that consumers really are paring back on what they're buying because their purchasing power has gone down so much? So to me, if you look just at average hourly earnings, that gives you an incomplete picture of just how strong the consumer is because you have to look at aggregate wages and salaries. That's the sum product of jobs, the work week, and hourly earnings. And that's running at a very healthy rate. In fact, it's running double digits. That was true in December as well. It's running well above the pace of inflation. So the aggregate sort of real income pie is growing. At the same time, we haven't even actually had a household credit cycle yet. If you look at consumer credit, revolving credit relative to 
things like disposable income or core consumer spending, it remains well below normal. So households haven't even taken on normal levels of credit appetite. So there's room for improvement there. But are we really going to worry about um, consumer spending when people are putting on down payments for homes? I mean, you're worried about whether they're gonna be buying cashmere sweaters during the winter when they're buying houses. Um, so I think, right. you know, and, that, and, that, and that's durable goods. Those are durable goods, right? So, uh, and that obviously has tentacles into other areas of consumer spending. Neil, you, um, you, do you delay the Fed rate, rate moves into 2023? Doug Cash just published that he's buying at the sound of cannons. This off of Nathan Mayer Rothschild from years and years ago. You step up to the sound of cannons and start buying into the market. The underpinning of that is framing the Fed call. Let's be clear here. How many rate rises do you see in 2022? Are you in the camp with Stephen Englander at Standard Charter that we're going to see a lot less movement by the Fed than expected? Well, I think there's a decent amount of dispersion with the Fed. But, yes. um, you know, look, when, when, when Governor, uh, sorry, when Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari is telling you that he's penciling in two rate hikes for this year, I think that's a reasonable baseline of how much the Fed will do at least at a bare minimum this year. Uh, and it's probably, um, you know, something where they go in, in March and June uh, at a minimum. Um, then they'll do runoff. And then if inflation is sticky, I think you can pencil in hikes in September and December. Uh, the Wall Street Journal was out today talking about how the Fed may go at every meeting. Again, it just tells you about how, how, how much yeah. hawkishness is already priced into the markets and how little the Fed actually has to so do to surprise in a dovish direction. So I think that you'll probably see a bull steepening of the yield curve going in uh, or, or, or immediately following the meeting. That, that's, that, that's what we're telling our, uh, our clients. I think the front end has room to rally here. The front room, uh, the front, uh, the front end has room to rally. So, in other words, you're telling your clients to buy short dated bonds and buy uh, the risk yeah, story. Is trade, that the idea? I mean, yeah, for a trade, Lisa. I mean, you know, coin flip for, for 50 basis points in March, the odds are zero. Okay. And who's worried about those cashmere sweaters, Sean? Not Neil Dutta, that's for sure. Neil, <laughs> we appreciate it, sir. I think the point Neil's making here, Tom, is really, really important. It's about probabilities. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.